And a very good afternoon on this Thursday. It is February 25th, 2021. And coming up, we're going to get into some uh, numbers, some uh, big numbers uh, here this afternoon, because unfortunately, we're up over a thousand cases again when it comes to the COVID caseload in the province. Just up over a thousand uh, cases here today. And we're also expecting some new modeling from the province as well, speaking of numbers. And these numbers are expected to go up too. Now, if you remember just a couple of weeks ago, we had fresh modeling, which was warning us all that we could see some escalating in numbers when it comes to COVID cases because of the variants, these highly, highly contagious variants of COVID-19. So we're expecting those numbers a little later on today. And of course, there is rising concern about the numbers in Barrie. As you've no doubt heard late yesterday throughout today, the Chief Medical Officer up in that area is wanting to return Barry in the surrounding region to the gray zone, into the lockdown zone. So is it time, should we put on the emergency break? Just so shortly after a reopening in Barry and other parts of the province, this was something that the Ontario government, of course, had planned for. They said that they had this emergency break at the ready. Are the metrics there? Should we apply the emergency break in Barrie and surrounding area? We'll talk to an infectious diseases expert about that coming up a little later this afternoon. Also coming up, and on a much, much lighter note, and on a much different note, we were celebrating earlier today on the morning show, the one, the only Paul Schaefer, who of course was the longtime band leader and right-hand man of David Letterman on The Late Show, we virtually inducted Paul uh, earlier today into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame for this gem right here. Yes, that's right. Uh, Paul Schaefer, I don't think many people knew this, Rob. I didn't know that. I love the song even more now. You were looking at me here across <laughs> like, the board you like, I'm what? Like, you got the right song queued up here? Yeah. Wow, he wrote that, eh? <laughs> yeah, he and uh, one other uh, gentleman wrote that back in 1982, and we inducted uh, Paul Schaefer proudly into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame today. Were you allowed to do that? They gave you the authority to induct them? We did have they a, a representative okay, okay. of said organization okay. that was there with plaque in hand, okay, again, good. all virtually on Zoom, as we do these days. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk to uh, Paul. We're going to replay that interview for you coming up, if you missed it, in about 15 minutes. We talk about his uh, time with Letterman. Also, I think a lot of people forget that uh, Paul Schaefer was actually uh, one of the originals on SNL. He was in the band. Yep. Yes, when they uh, first yeah. kicked off He's Saturday also Night Live. A multi-instrumentalist. He's a musical genius. He does it all. Yep. And uh, Paul Schaefer uh, coming up again. We'll replay that interview for you from earlier today on the morning show just after uh, 1.30. First, though, have you ever kind of started something and then you just couldn't put it down? You just couldn't put it away? Well, I'm guessing that's exactly what happened to our first guest uh, here the, uh, this afternoon. Let's uh, welcome in uh, Maxine Olive from uh, Belleville, who has just shattered a, a world record. And Maxine joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Maxine, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, first off, uh, tell us about this uh, new world's record. Uh, what exactly have you been up to? What have you been busy with? All right, so it was a 40,320-piece puzzle broken into 10 different panels of different Disney scenes. So you have what they would call their most iconic. You've got Snow White, The Lion King, Jungle Book, 
names and characters everyone knows and loves. You've at least heard of them, even if you haven't watched these movies. Each panel is about 4,000 pieces, and they all hook together to form one massive six feet wide by 22 and a half feet long puzzle. My goodness. All right, listen, are you busy for the rest of the afternoon? Because I've got so many questions here. This might take us till the end of the uh, show. But uh, first and foremost, where did you find and uh, how did you ever hear about a 40,000-piece jigsaw puzzle? Uh, Back about a year ago, my friend sent me a link to an even larger puzzle, a 50,000-piece one that Kodak makes. And that started the ball rolling, my gears turning, trying to see... What's up with these big puzzles? How many of them are there? What kinds are there? And I came across the Disney one. At that point, I decided if I was going to stream this online, myself as a viewer, I would way rather see the Disney one put together. And frankly, I wanted to do the Disney one a whole lot more. Okay, so 40,320 pieces. Uh, I'm guessing the Amazon driver just doesn't pull up to the front of the house with something like that. Like, did they have to, like, bring this in, like, on a front-end loader? Was it on a skid? (laughs) (laughs) No, um, it ended up being delivered to um, a Canada Post outlet, and I had to go get it. It took up the whole back seat of my car. This thing is so big. (laughs) (laughs) And that wasn't daunting when you were loading this thing into your car? Were you, at that point, even that early on, thinking, what have I done? What am I doing? Doing? Well, it wasn't until I got it home and I was like, oh, I get to open the box and see that I open it up and see all the pieces. Of, what did I just do? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, this is only part of the puzzle, if you will, or part of the story, because not only did you take on this mammoth puzzle, but uh, you did it in record time in what was it, 150 hours? Yep, about that. Now, why? <laughs> <laughs> Well, when I got researching them, I actually called Ravensburger, and they told me that there was a gentleman down in the States that was the fastest time they had known of. That was about 423 hours. And I thought, well, that seems awfully high. Like, even at my worst, I think I could beat that. I was thinking maybe I'd get around 200, 300 hours, somewhere around there. But uh, I took that to even more of an extreme and got 150. Okay, well, obviously you enjoy a challenge. You like a challenge and so much. I mean, this really took a hold over, uh, what was it, nine days? Yep, nine full days. And you actually booked time off work because of this. I did. I took my vacation. (laughs) (laughs) A working vacation. I was going to say, looking back, was your vacation relaxing at all? (laughs) When I finished it, maybe. (laughs) Well, how did you get this thing together when it's in four quadrants like that? And I think most people that uh, when they take on just any old jigsaw puzzle, they they start with the outer edges. Is that how you did it and kind of worked your way inward? Yep. I started with um, however many true sides that you get because they all hook together to form the master puzzle. You really only get one or two true sides per section. So I tried to work from the film strip to start that. And then I'd normally go into the characters, and from there I would sort the environment and then the stars to finish it off. Now, Maxine, your eyes must have been burning at times, right? I mean, because anyone who has done a puzzle, they know what it's like. I mean, you're just sitting there, you're looking for the right piece, and uh, you can't quite find it, and you just, you get, I I don't know, into some sort of trance. Uh, The puzzle kind of pulls you into its world. (laughs) Especially on the days when we did the longest stretches as we went on. We were going later and later, and between Saturday and Sunday, I probably only had about an hour nap, so it was approximately a 34-hour stretch. That was pretty brutal, but I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, my goodness, and speaking of, what did it feel like when you finally had that last piece in place? 
when I finished the final panel, it was this moment of disbelief. I had to look around and like, it's done. There's no more. <laughs> and as I was sliding the last two together, it was just this relief. I had a concept of how big this thing would be seeing all the panels, but it wasn't until it was all laid out as one that I really wrapped my mind around just how large it is. <laughs> Now, did you hear from people uh, online? Uh, were people aware of what you were doing? Because uh, puzzles have really taken off, uh, taken off, sorry, during the pandemic, right? I mean, it's been a great way for uh, families to get together and kill time. Did you have, uh, I don't know, fellow uh, puzzlers uh, rooting you on? Yep, absolutely. So I was live streaming it to my Twitch the whole time. So anyone could have hopped in on at any point and watched all the progress. And then um, as we started to get the news involved, I started getting messages from not only people that I know, but random strangers cheering me on and congratulating me for making the attempt. That is awesome. Well, listen, let me add my congratulations. And by the way, you've applied to uh, Guinness. You're just waiting for uh, official word, whether or not this is an official world record. I have, yeah. It, it should take several weeks before they respond. All right. And, and what do you get if you set a Guinness world record? Do you know? Um, either a certificate of some kind, or I've heard that you can get plaques in some cases. Well, just like our friend Paul Schaefer, we were mentioning into the Canadian Songwriters <laughs> Hall of Fame, you, you get a lovely plaque. Isn't that great? You do. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, congratulations uh, on the accomplishment. I mean, talk about uh, tenacity, fortitude, the, uh, the will, the sheer will just not to uh, give up. I mean, honestly, I can't even put a thousand-piece puzzle together, never mind a 40,000. That is just uh, awesome. Maxine, congratulations, and thanks again for joining us. Great. Thank you so much. There's Maxine Olive from uh, Belleville, who you just heard. Uh, we'll find out in a uh, few weeks. Officially, if she's uh, got the Guinness record for putting together 40,000 pieces of puzzle in 150 hours. Just incredible. Well, I sort of made a deal with him. Uh, I was at college, University of Toronto. Notice how I've learned to say college down here in the States. Uh, but it was, a, of course, a university. And and my dad would come down occasionally. He was a lawyer and he was uh, on a ben the Bencher Society. He'd have meetings in Toronto and I would have lunch with him. And one time I just said, Dad, I, got, I think I got to try music. What about if I just give myself a year, you know, and if I'm starving, maybe I'll go back to grad school or do something legitimate. And he actually said, you know, your mother and I were sort of figuring we were gonna do something like that. Uh, but still it was the year that I had and I didn't know, you know, the year was ending and I don't know whether I was gonna have to ask for another year, but just as the year was ending, I, uh, as a fluke, I got a job conducting the off-Broadway show Godspell, Toronto Company. Uh, just on a fluke, I went to a, a company, a friend who was auditioning for Stephen Schwartz, the composer, and Stephen hired me. And I'd never done anything like that before, but all of a sudden I was in show business. And uh, then he brought me to New York to work for him on Broadway and in the magic show with the late uh, Doug Henning. Um, and that's how I uh, came to the USA. Well, listen, you met and worked with so many great uh, what came to be very famous Canadians through Godspell, including uh, Eugene Levy. You've been friends with Eugene for years, and we know, Paul, that the two of you got to reunite on screen for uh, Schitt's Creek, which uh, I tell you, what a year that that show and Eugene and his son have had. But what was it like to be reunited with Eugene and be a part of that series? Well, there is a clip of us, yes. Well, you know what? Eugene tells me that I'm the only 
person in the history of their show who appeared playing himself. Uh, so that's a, some kind of distinction. We, we had a great time. I mean, what a cast they have. With Dan himself, you know, second generation, comedic brilliance there. And then you got Catherine O'Hara. Uh, forget about it, you know. Uh, there was a lot of laughter on the set, and uh, needless to say, it, you know, it gets on, on the screen. A lot of fun that day. Paul, where's your Golden Globe knob? The whole cast got nominated <laughs> this week at the Golden Globes. Where's Why didn't I get a nomination? Best, best guest appearance. I you know. Well, there isn't. I know. Well, you know, the, I'll tell you something, though. This award I'm getting today is, makes up for that and, and, and way more. I'm, I'm so thrilled. All right, well, listen, we're going to talk about that in just a second. But uh, from the Golden Globes to the golden years of SNL, uh, what would fans be surprised to find out about that show when you worked on SNL? Do you have a kind of a favorite uh, Saturday Night Live story? Story? Uh, my goodness, there were so many of them. It was They were making it up, you know. I got to be there with a ringside seat on the piano uh, as they invented this stuff. This is a number. Oh, that was Cher. And yes, the original band. Not the original, but like the second generation of the band. I see that's me on the on the left there with hair. And again, with hair. <laughs> you know, it changes the way you play. I'm sure it must. This was Cher performing when she had a thousand one. She was doing that on uh, on SNL. Um, the, the plots sometimes there with the overall story arc of the episode would sometimes mirror what was really going on back backstage. They would just write it into the show. And some of it was quite unbelievable at the time, but there it would be on screen. And it was certainly unusual. And look at the impact it made. It's still on all these 45 years later. Testament to how great it is. Oh, we have to talk about the fact that you, of course, were David Letterman's right-hand man for more than 30 years. I know you guys still you. keep in touch. How often are you guys chatting? And what, yes. what does Paul and Dave talk about when you guys do call each other up? Uh, we lament the state of show business today. And I say, would you know what to do in today's show business he says no would you and i say no and i say okay we'll see you tomorrow and then we hang up <laughs> and we do that uh, you know about once a week so that's it uh, he's he's become a, a, a lovely loyal friend by his you know he he wanted to keep in touch and it's been a really a lovely friendship that continues and uh before the quarantine we were even having dinner and stuff maybe we'll get to do that again it's some of the iconic performances of the disco hit It's Raining Man. Now, Paul Schaefer co-wrote that song alongside Paul Jabara back in 1982, and of course, it has been packing dance floors ever since, and we're rejoined by uh, Paul Schaefer from uh, New York. And Paul, give us the backstory on this. How did this song come to be? Well, uh, this guy was named Paul Jabara, um, and he... Um, well, the, the, the year that I got to New York, 74, he had just had a Broadway show called Rachel Lily Rosenblum, and Don't You Forget It, kind of about a Bette Midler character. And then he became a recording artist. 
was at the time just getting started playing piano and arranging, and I did some arrangements for Paul Chabara. Um, one song he was singing was called One Man Ain't Enough. So you can see he already had a kind of, developing that same kind of sense of humor about songs. One Man Ain't Enough wasn't a hit, but he went on to write Last Dance for Donna Summer, and he won an Oscar for that. And so he was like a real songwriter. And when he called me up and he said, uh, I'd like you to write one with me. I've got an idea for Donna Summer because her career had cooled a little bit. He said, what do you think of this title for her? It's Raining Man. And I said, okay. And I came over and we, you know, he had all of these um, phrases ready to go. He said he had the whole thing in his head, really just needed somebody to put music to it. And that's where I came in. And we were really writing it with Donna in mind, you know, so I, I just happened to be at the piano myself. But when we went, you know, he said, play, play a little something, play me something. So I just started playing these chords, you know, and it just became, it's written, man, hey, man, you know, and he goes, you know, I, I, I went, I go, I'm going to go out, going to let myself get. And I went, absolutely soaking wet. And he says, no, he says, uh, she loves that Donna loves to hold the notes out. Absolutely soaking wet. It's wet. Oh, so then we had, you know, and as you, we were really writing it for her. And then when he played it for her, because they, they were best friends, she absolutely hated it. And she was insulted <laughs> by it. <laughs> and she especially hated when it said hallelujah it's raining but she didn't it was blasphemous to her she had she had become religious of course you know and she passed on the song but not only did she pass but everybody all the great female singers at the time that paul jabara played it for they all hated it i'm talking about patty labelle got hated it diana ross hated it Streisand hated it. I mean, I could go on and on, but God bless Paul Jabara. He made the instrumental track anyway. Didn't even know who was going to sing it yet, but finally he found these two women, Martha Wash, Azora Armstead. They they used to back up Sylvester, an early disco act. He said, you made me feel mighty real. And they were in the background, and they called themselves Two Tons of Fun. Anyway, he changed the name to the Weather Girls and put their voices on it, and it became a hit, you know, on its own with it, without even a big name on it, which was a big thrill. And, um, you know, I was really just, uh, God bless Paul Chabara, he made this happen, and he didn't rest until it did happen. So there's, you know, there in a nutshell is It's Raining Men. And Paul, then of course, it has been used in so many iconic TV shows and movies, covered by everyone from Jerry Hollowell to RuPaul. I mean, do you have a favorite version of the song? Well, of course, the original uh, has got to be my favorite. Martha Wash just sings her you-know-what off. And it was a formidable you-know-what, if I may say. Uh, but boy, she did it. And Azora, who's no longer with us, the two of them were an, an incredible team. Of course, Jerry Halliwell's was number one worldwide, except in the U.S., and it even tried it, finally tried it in Canada, I think Jerry's version. Uh, I'm thrilled, uh, no matter who wants, once in a while I'll get a, a message, you know, in Australia they want to use it in a, a deodorant commercial, you know, or they want to say, hey, it's raining, you know, it's raining free. I say, go ahead, change it. It's, I love it all.
complain about it. Well, listen, Paul, it's a thrill to have you with us today to honor you and that song. The Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame was founded back in 1998 and acquired by SOCAN in 2011. And they induct songs and songwriters all across Canada at different music events and festivals throughout the year. And joining us now for a very special presentation is the executive director of Canada's Songwriting Hall of Fame. There she is right there, Vanessa Thomas. Vanessa, good Hi. morning. Take it away. <laughs> hey, Carolyn and Jeff. Nice to, nice to see you again. And Paul, welcome home. So it's time. Thank you, it's Vanessa. Time, it's time for this song. I am so excited for both you and, and Paul, the late Paul Jabara. But I am thrilled to induct a song that I, I sweated my you-know-what off a lot in high school. <laughs> it's raining men into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame where it will live at a National Music Center in Calgary in our exhibit for everybody to hear in our jukebox. And it's along with Hallelujah and Universal Soldier and uh, Hot Child in the City and so many iconic songs written by Canadians just like you. And we are so proud to call you one of our own. So thank you so much for writing this song. And welcome into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, Paul. Yes, absolutely. What can I thank you? I mean, I want to thank you personally, Vanessa. I want to thank the song Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame for giving me an honor that they didn't have to. I mean, it's just like out of the blue, the, one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. When your own country recognizes you, what can I say? And to the late, great Paul Jabbar, I know that he is you know, just as thrilled as I am right now for me. So I thank all of you guys and Carolyn and Jeff. Thanks for throwing the party. It's been, it's wonderful. And I love the music here. Yeah. Well, you know, it's pretty easy to throw a party when the band is Paul Schaefer. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> ah. <laughs> Paul, congratulations. Vanessa, so great seeing you again. Nice to see you too, guys. Thank you, guys. All C. SHF songs are featured for public listening at the National Music Center in Calgary, and you can check out www.cshf.ca for all the history and ceremony footage. Right. Paul, can you play us out? Absolutely. That's what I do for a living. <laughs> Well, the city of Barrie is sounding the COVID alarm, worried about a rising caseload because of the variant. That area's chief medical officer says he's now considering asking the province to put them back into lockdown or the gray zone. And for more on this, we're joined now by Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases expert. He joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, how concerning is this situation that's going on in the Barrie area right now? Yeah, the, what's going on in Barrie is reflecting a little bit of what's going on in the rest of the province, which is that there's been a stabilization and in some areas a slight increase and in uptick of cases. So it is concerning that there are some regions in Ontario, including Barrie, that are returning or are whatever you like to call it, a wave is re-emerging and uh, hence the need for additional restrictions. Yeah, and is this due to the variant, the more uh, contagious uh, variant or variants? Do we know that yet? 
It's a little early to tell, but definitely the prevalence of the variants is rising, which is to say that out of the total number of COVID cases, the proportion of those due to the variants is probably upwards around you know, 15, 20%, maybe even higher now, which is exactly what was predicted by the science table earlier in February and, and January. As a matter of fact, I think we're going to get additional modeling uh, later this afternoon, uh, correct? Yes, yes, typically uh, at near the end of the week, that's what happens. Uh, yeah, so that that's you know that that might explain why we're having more cases in parts of Ontario, including Barrie. Yeah, Dr. Vaisman, do you know is there one of the variants that is more prevalent than the others? Uh, one that we should be more concerned about right now? The one that is the most common uh, is the B one one seven, the one that was first identified in the UK. The fortunate thing about that is that we know that it is responsive to the vaccine. That the data that came out from other parts of the world that when vaccination has a fairly good effect against it. So it is bad news that a variant is spreading, which is more transmissible. On the other hand, it is one that we know the vaccine is effective against. And really, at the end of the day, is that the ultimate answer is the uh, vaccine? I know we're getting a, a record shipment uh, this week, and we are finally starting to get needles into arms, but it's still going to be uh, some considerable time until we get to a general uh, vaccination. So are we all just going to have to buckle down for the time being, do you think? Exactly, exactly. This is um, it's going to take a few more weeks, uh, maybe a, f- a month or more for the people who are 80 or over to get vaccinated. So we know that the vaccine works. We know from data from Israel, for example, that the deaths fall very quickly, the hospitalizations fall very quickly. So this is, this is really the, the beginning of the end of the worst aspect of the pandemic. That's not to say that there won't be additional cases, just that the high mortality rates that we saw earlier on are less likely to be the case in the, in the near future. You mentioned hospitalizations. Uh, what are the metrics that we should really be uh, looking at when it comes to uh, this rising uh, caseload and perhaps uh, going back into a lockdown, putting on the so-called emergency break as uh, the Barry area is looking at uh, once again? Is it just caseload we should be looking at or is it something more? Yeah, the, the primary reason, that I think the most palatable reason for the general population to accept the restrictions or lockdowns is the hospital system. Is the hospital system getting overwhelmed with uh, admissions, uh, ICU admissions, and people dying in hospital? Because once those numbers, if you have a situation where those numbers are not rising, then I think people will tolerate the idea that, that, that there is virus around and people can get infected by it. And uh, even if cases are high, if, if not a lot of people are dying from it, it's it's less of a justification for uh, these kind of lockdowns. So that's that's the primary measure for the time being that most of these areas are looking at. Yeah, and is there a standard when it comes to uh, ICU and hospitalizations and uh, admissions there that uh, once we get up over uh, a certain uh, percentage, that's when we should really start looking at this, uh, again, so-called emergency break? The, the basic idea is to make sure that you're not exceeding the capacity of your ICU beds in your region. So looking at the number of beds that are currently occupied and using modeling to figure out how many will be occupied in the near future. And if you get to a point where you're exceeding your capacity and you're having to transferring patients out of your region or if the whole system is overwhelmed, then that's really, you really want to avoid that. That's to the point, that's the point where you really want to make sure you're never going to reach. The thing about ICU capacity is that there is, a, there is an ability for some hospitals to make extra space. But that's in a very stressful situation where other non-conventional spaces are being used for ICU patients. So you really want to make sure you don't get to that point. And that's kind of the, the goal with the restrictions. 
Just finally, uh, Dr. Vaisman, I wanted to ask you about the vaccines just a little uh, further since those are the uh, ultimate uh, answer here. We're still waiting for uh, Health Canada. Uh, we had a report uh, yesterday that the AstraZeneca approval was uh, imminent, and we heard that a, a week or so ago as well, that they were just looking at the uh, the labeling. Just how key is that to get uh, another tool in the toolbox, if you will, uh, another vaccine uh, available? Yeah, absolutely. Getting more vaccines available is a good thing so that more people can have access uh, we won't be bound by the fact that one manufacturer is restricted at one time or another uh, by the shipments, for example. The more options we have, the better. And of course, generally speaking, all the vaccines that have been approved in other countries have been highly effective. Uh, there are some nuances for the AstraZeneca, but in general, the, the more options we have, the better uh, for all of Canadians. Uh, as well as, uh, do you know anything or much about the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine? Uh, we're hearing quite a bit about that uh, in the last uh, day or so, the fact that uh, it's only a, a single dose, which is fairly effective. Exactly. That, that could be another game changer in the whole system because having a single dose with a, with a vaccine that is highly effective, that doesn't have any restrictions with refrigeration or freezing, can mean that in the near future uh, when it arrives, it could we could vaccinate massive amounts numbers of people very, very quickly. Uh, people in remote areas, people who don't have access to centralized places with the with the, the specialized freezers. So that's a that's a huge change, a huge improvement if that's a vac- if that's approved and made widely available. All right. Dr. Vaisman, appreciate the time with us this afternoon and the update. Thanks so much. Thank you. Dr. Alon Vaisman is a infectious diseases expert.